Well, Pastor Paul will pick up next week where he left off in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, but today we're going to be focusing, my name's Craig, by the way, I'm one of the pastors here on the staff. Um, we're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. You know, um, we're going to be talking about Paul, the apostle of grace. Paul, the apostle of grace. You know, there's a tapestry of God's grace that is woven throughout all of history. Not only is it a New Testament doctrine, but it, we see grace woven throughout the pages of the Old Testament. You know, the story of scripture is not what man can do for God, but what God has done for man. Oftentimes we make the story of scripture about us. We make it man-centered. You know, the story of scripture is all about God's amazing grace. It's about how our great and glorious God and his infinite kindness and mercy poured out upon mankind his grace through the finished work of Christ. Billy Graham said, yes, the grace of God is a reality. Thousands have tried, tested, and proved that it is more than a cold case creed, a docile doctrine, or a tedious theory. The grace of God has been tested in the crucible of human experience and has been found to be more than an, more than an equal for the problems of sin of humanity. You know, in order for grace to be bestowed upon someone or to have grace extended towards a man or a woman, the individual must be in a place of being completely undeserving or in a place where they play no part in achieving it. In other words, in order for it to be an act of grace, it must be completely unmerited and undeserved. Arthur Pink, or so what is grace? What is grace? Is grace um, the prayer that we eat before a meal? Grace, a simple definition of grace is it's the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. William Barclay goes on to say that the word grace emphasizes at the one and the same time the helpless poverty of man and the limitless kindness of God. And in order for us to have grace, it must be completely unearned and unmerited. In other words, it's an act of grace. It must be completely, it's undeserved. Arthur Pink goes on to say, grace can neither be bought or earned or won by the creature. If it could be, it would cease to be grace. For instance... If I got together with a group of friends my, and uh, a group of friends were getting together to write a song and they uh, got together at the studio and they invited me to come along or you to come along and they, over the next few hours, they ended up writing this incredible song and they produced it and that song went on to be number one on the billboard charts for 52 weeks in a row. Now that would be pretty cool. That would be an incredible song, right? But you had no part to play in the writing process. You didn't come up with it. You didn't come up with the melody, the lyrics, the arrangement, the instrumentation. You were just a friend of one of the guys there in the room. And when they started to get royalty checks and payouts from YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, etc., they decided to include your name on the credits for this viral song. You started to get paid for something that, you, that was undeserved, right? And it was unmerited. You received favor and you couldn't believe it. Was this a mistake? And you know what? That is what grace is in our life. God pouring out his unmerited, undeserved favor into our life when we know who we are, how far short we fall of who God is and what he requires of us. And yet God pours out his, his mercy into our lives. You know, it's hard for us as Americans and especially religious people to understand grace. Why? Because in our culture and our religious systems, we earn everything. We earn that promotion at work. We earn that championship trophy. 
We earned that scholarship and those grades because we worked hard. And we were successful because of how hard we had worked. Now, based off of our merit or our performance, we had gained something in return, and rightfully so. We had put in the hard time, the time, and the energy, and the effort to be able to earn that success. However, the problem is, is when we bring that same mindset into our relationship with God and somehow think that we can earn or attain a standing before him, that's the issue. Now, we think that we can earn God's favor because of the religious ceremony that we were part of, that we prayed for five hours a day. We gave more money to the church. We were at the church and worked like a pack mule to earn God's standing because we were serving at every event. Maybe we were sprinkled with holy water when we were a kid. And you know, it wasn't just holy water. It was holy water that the Pope had blessed or maybe it was water from the Jordan River. We think that by somehow that earns standing with God, right? I'm, I'm a pretty good person, but because I was baptized or I was sprinkled with that water, somehow I'm, I'm, I have earned God's favor. You know, when it comes down to it, we really think that we're good and deserve the favor of God. And the fact is, is that all of us here today are undeserving of such a gift because of our rebellion against God and his commands. You know, Romans 3.23 says, for notice, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means me, that means you, that means your neighbor to the left of you or to the right of you. All of us have fallen short of what God's standard is for our life. You know, the scripture in Romans 5.8 is one of the greatest pictures of grace in all of scripture. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God demonstrated his great love for me and for you. And that while we were rejected, we didn't want to have anything to do with him. He wasn't even on our radar. We were living life for self, living life for my own pleasure and, and not living a life that would honor him. And in the midst of that, God sent his son to die for me. That Christ died for the ungodly, the undeserving. And you know, this is a picture of grace. And you know what, brothers and sisters? Grace changes everything in our life. It removes the striving and the trying to attain a standing with God on our own merit. Who are those undeserving people in your life that you think are undeserving of God's favor, of his grace? Was it a person who had burned you? Maybe it was a, a work colleague or a boss. Maybe it was a spouse who had walked out on you. Or maybe it was a religious leader who had somehow abused you in some way. Who are those undeserving people in the world that we know? Is it Rocket Man down there in North Korea? Is it the Ayatollahs in Iran? Is it a pedophile? Is it a murderer? Is it a fornicator? Who are those undeserving people? Undeserving of God's grace. Well, one such undeserving soul was Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus had this incredible encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. And for the first time in his life, this religious murderous zealot who was driven by extremism and by rage, striving to attain a standing with God on his own merits, was suddenly confronted with the reality of his true condition before a holy God. James 6, 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God sets himself against the man who is proud, who wants to try to do it his own way. But he gives grace, he gives unmerited, undeserved favor 
to the humble, to those that are broken, to the poor in spirit, to those who recognize their deep need and great need for a savior. Before coming to Christ, Paul was, very, was a very proud religious man. And he thought that he could attain standing before God by keeping the law and the traditions of his forefathers. He was doing it his own way. And he thought that he was better than other people. He thought he was a, he was a superior race. He showed great prejudice against those who were not Jews. You know that some of the meanest people in the world are religious people. Some of the worst atrocities in human history have been done by religious people in the name of God. And Paul was one of those guys. Paul was humbled. And in that place of being humbled, that place of vulnerability, that place of brokenness, at the feet of Jesus, Saul found grace. And there on the Damascus road, lying in the dust, Saul of Tarsus experienced not condemnation, which he deserved, not a rebuke, which he, re he deserved, not judgment, which he deserved, not being destroyed, which he certainly deserved, but he experienced for the first time the love of God, which drove him to repentance. It drove Saul to change his mind about who Christ was in his life, to turn from going the direction that he was going and now turn to Christ. God's grace was poured out upon him that day. And he experienced the peace of God for the very first time. This giant weight that was crushing him of him trying to earn standing with God by reaching up to God on his own strength. God had removed that. And for the first time, he experienced God's amazing peace. Paul would go on to write about this to the Philippians. He says, and if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. In his former life, Saul boasted in his accomplishments, his family lineage, in his persecution of Christ's followers, in his own ability to keep the law. But notice when he was transformed by the power of God's grace, he would go on to write, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You know, God's grace, it changed him as he turned to Jesus by faith. As he learned to walk with Jesus, he found himself no longer boasting in the things that he had done, but in what Christ had done for him. And you know, I think that this is a sign of the believer life that has been transformed and changed by the power of grace. They're no longer boasting in their own accomplishments of what, how great they are, but they're boasting in what Jesus has done for them. So what are we boasting in today? Are we boasting in what we have done? Our stamp of Christianity? Are we patting ourselves back on our back about what harvest has done? Or are we boasting in Christ of what he has done? Who is the great one among us? Is it not Christ in me, the hope of glory? 
Is it not Christ in you, the hope of glory? Let us boast, brothers and sisters, in what he has done. And because of his faith in Christ, it activated God's grace, his amazing grace, his unmerited, undeserved favor in his life. And Saul of Tarsus will go on to write to the Ephesians that he was saved by grace through faith. You receive this unmerited, undeserved favor into our life, not by working like a pack mule or striving to do some religious duty, but it's you by faith trusting in Christ, that gift that God has given to us. It's a gift. We receive it. And that by faith, it activates God's grace in our life. Saul of Tarsus was so profoundly touched by the grace of God that he would later become the apostle Paul. He would go on to write two thirds of the New Testament to become the greatest church planner in Christendom, to become the greatest evangelist. He became a father to many in the faith. And he would go on to become the apostle of God's grace. Paul would write more about God's grace than all the other biblical writers combined. So how did Paul go on to become the apostle of grace? How did he leave that old life behind and continue to become who he became? And in Acts 11 gives us a little glimpse into how this man would go on to become this man, this apostle of grace. And so to give you a little background as we're moving on, God's heart has always been to save the world from sin. How sin entered the world through the first Adam, God was going to reconcile the world back to himself through the second Adam. You know, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world. He loves the whole world, not wanting anyone to perish. And God does not want to condemn the world or to take pleasure in destroying it. No, God sent his son to seek and to save that which was lost. And brothers and sisters, we need to have his heart for those that are perishing without him. Jesus gave the, the church, his disciples, the command. You know, it's the great commission there in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of, notice, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And again, he goes on and he confirms that call in Acts 1.8. They're standing before the 500. Um, he was about to ascend into heaven. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and notice, to the ends of the earth. Now, the church in Jerusalem was having a hard time breaking free from centuries of cultural Judaism and the prejudices that they adopted towards the non-Jew in the Gentile world. And the book of Acts shows us just how hard it is for those prejudices to die in our hearts. These prejudices were fueled by religious differences between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews followed their strict religious laws and traditions, including dietary restrictions and observances of the Sabbath, which set them apart from the Gentiles, and this led to a sense of separation and at times great animosity towards one another. No doubt this played a role in the Jew thinking that they were superior to the Gentile. They looked down upon the Gentiles because they were unclean and worshiped idols and false gods. And you know, the Jew thought they were a special race, a special breed because they were God's chosen people. They thought they had the special sauce, not Chick-fil-A sauce, but God's special. They thought they had God, a special sauce, right? Because they had Abraham, the prophets, and Moses, and that they, they were given the oracles of God. You know, the, the Jerusalem church 
was in the midst of this religious-fueled environment. And this mindset was permeating into the church and was hindering them from obeying the Lord to go into all the world and save souls. Now in Acts 11, Peter is found defending God's grace being poured out upon the Gentiles in the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion. Word got back to Jerusalem that Peter went into a Roman centurion home, a Gentile, and ate with him. And in verse two of chapter 11, it says, those of the circumcision contended with him, they opposed him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, those of the circumcision, these were Jewish believers known as Judaizers. And Judaizers believed in Christ, so they'd come to faith in Christ, but believed that you weren't really saved until you were actually saved by Christ and then baptized into Judaism by being circumcised and following the laws of Moses. So they were perverting coming to Christ, the simple faith in Christ alone. And now these Judaizers were giving pushback to Peter. They, and it says that they contended with Peter. And so they were more concerned that Peter, being a Jew and an apostle, ate with Gentiles than they were that these Gentiles were coming to Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, this is what religion does. It makes people good rule followers, but it ignores what God is truly concerned with, the condition of men's hearts. And you know, we see this over 2,000 years of church history. There's been points where the church is more focused on tradition and rules than it is about saving souls and seeing people come to Christ simply by faith. There's a new uh, movie out called Jesus Revolution, and many of you have, may have seen it, but back in the 70s, there was a great revival that was taking place in the, the lives of these hippies. They were searching for answers, looking for answers, and they were coming to the church. But there were these religious institutions, these denominations, we were more concerned with keeping the carpet clean than they were about these hippies coming into the church with bare feet. God is wanting people to come to him and he doesn't want us to be a place that hinders that. I pray that our carpets will remain dirty because we have, and these altars filled with repentant sinners coming forward because their lives are being changed. Not that they looked apart when they come to the door, but as they come in here and let the word wash over their hearts, their lives are radically changed for the gospel. God loves people and he made a way for them to come to him through simple faith in Christ not following a bunch of rules. You know, eating with a person in that culture was a big deal. And it was the idea that you were becoming one with them or giving them the right hand of fellowship. It was a very intimate occasion. Now they ate with lots of sauces and breads. And so the idea would be, I dip, you dip, we dip, we double dip, right? So I dip, you dip, we dip, double dip, right? And so... The idea here is that your saliva would be in the same sauce that I am dipping in and it would go into your body and my saliva would go into your body and this would lead me to being ceremonially unclean if I ate with, a, with, ate with you, a pagan, right? If I ate with you, it would be getting your cooties on me and would somehow defile me or make me unclean. So the Jewish believers were, were offended that Peter would eat with them. And so they confronted him. Now notice Peter's response. And I began to speak 
And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and upon us at the beginning. And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I would withstand God? So these religious leaders were coming and giving him pushback and Peter's just stating the facts of what happened. Who am I to deny what God was doing? God was pouring out his spirit upon them just as he did us at the beginning. I'm not gonna fight God. God was at work breaking down the religious prejudices, their hardened hearts towards reaching the lost. Their customs and their oral traditions were getting in the way of what God wanted to do. Notice, and, and when they heard these things, notice they became silent. And they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. This was a mic drop moment for them. They were put in their places by what God had done in amongst the Gentiles by pouring, by filling them with the Holy Spirit. And these religious guys spoke with ignorance, without knowledge of what the Lord was doing and how God was moving to save the world through faith in Christ. And it was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that confirmed this ministry. William Barclay says, Luke was right. We usually do not realize how near Christianity was to becoming only another kind of Judaism. All the first Christians were Jews and the whole tradition and outlook of Judaism would have moved them to keep this new wonder to themselves and to believe that God could not possibly have meant it for the Gentiles. Luke sees the incident as a notable milestone on the road along which the church was groping its way to the conception of a world for Christ. They glorified God because God had granted salvation to the Gentiles. And this was an amazing moment for the Jerusalem church because they were beginning to realize God's plan was to save the whole world from sin, not just the Jew. But however, they would go on to struggle with this from breaking free from the Judaizers who taught to keep the church bound by law instead of faith in Christ alone. And so this is where a shift begins to take place in the book of Acts. The focus had primarily been on Jerusalem up to this point. And now there's gonna be this shift because the church in Jerusalem was dragging her feet from accomplishing what Jesus had called her to do, to go into all the world to preach the gospel. So God raised up a Gentile church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, a church that would be strong in the doctrine of grace. Now, this is where we pick up in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that is, the Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, notice, after the stoning of Stephen... A godly man, a man full of faith, a man full of the Holy Spirit was there standing before these religious leaders and they stoned him to death because of his testimony for Christ. And the church was scattered and they went up along the Mediterranean seaboard of Phoenicia, that region, up to Cyprus and notice 300 miles north to Antioch. And notice that they were preaching the word of the Lord. 
These believers, however, they were, there was believers from Cyprus and Cyrene stepped out in faith and preached to the Gentiles. Now this was the first time that the Gentiles had stepped out beyond the Jew to preach Christ. Now, when Peter had preached to Cornelius' home, it was Cornelius that had a vision and sent for Peter. So Peter came back to his house because the Holy Spirit had spoke to him to go with these guys. Now we have these, these Jewish believers now stepping out and crossing cultural boundaries to preach Christ for the first time. Now notice that they, they preach Christ. They preach the word of God. And it was the word of God in the over, washing over these pagan hearts that convicted them of their sin. And they began to turn to Christ. That there was a great number, God's favor was upon them and there was a great number that believed. There was a great revival that took place in Antioch and there was a large number of believers who turned to the Lord. Now these new believers, they turned away from their old life, their old ways of living. They repented and they turned to Christ. You know, when we come to Christ, the Lord asks the same thing of us. We're not to come out and just do a quarter turn or a three quarter turn where we're kind of halfway in, halfway out. But the Lord wants us to turn completely from that old way of living, that old way of life and have victory by living in him. And out of that, these new believers that were coming to Christ, a church was birthed out of that revival there in Antioch. And they started to continue to meet together, to pray together, to worship together. You know, Antioch, it was no small city. It wasn't this little country town. But it had 200 to 250,000 people. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire next to Alexandria and Rome itself. It had great influence. It had culture. It had philosophy. It had engineering marvels. And it was also the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire there to the, the gateway to the east. There's an article in Harvard Magazine called Antioch Revealed. It gives us a glimpse into what was going on there. The pulsating metropolis must have been clogged with boisterous traffic. The bands of jugglers and dancing girls on their way to Antioch, cohorts on the march, merchants from Baghdad and Damascus with their silks and spices and perfumes, itinerant Greek philosophers, gladiators, men with caged beasts for the circus at Antioch, pagan priests begging their way with a god in a tent, and somewhere in that crowd, symbols of the old world and the new. A Roman senator traveling in state, and notice, on and on foot, a Christian on a greater mission. In the midst of this pagan culture, in the midst of all of this philosophy, these engineering marvels, there were Christians on the move. God was at work. And you know, the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, but he began to make inroads into impacting this pagan culture for Christ. It goes on in verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Word got back to Jerusalem that God was doing something unbelievable up there in Antioch. Thousands were coming to Christ. And so what did they do? They're like, we need to send up a guy who's, who can be an encouragement to them. A guy who, is, who, who, can, who would come alongside these and disciple them. 
So the apostles and the church leaders in Jerusalem, they sent up double B to them. Brother Barnabas, right? Brother Barnabas. This was a 300 mile journey to the north on foot. That was a long way to travel. And just to give you an idea of how far that is, it would be as if you, tomorrow morning, you were to set out and walk to Indianapolis. And not only would you walk to Indianapolis, you'd get there and you would turn around and come back. And then you'd come to Fort Wayne, you'd bypass Fort Wayne and you'd go to Auburn. That would be about 300 miles. Now, if you were to get a set out tomorrow morning on foot and you would start out for, yeah, that was like an average pace of 15 days in a row of 20 miles a day. That was the average pace. So if you were to set out tomorrow morning and you would go and you would start to walk, I think after the first day of walking 20 miles, your hammies would be a little tight, your feet would be a little sore, and you would think twice about traveling the next day for 20 miles, right? But 15 days in a row would get you to Antioch. And so Barnabas took a risk for the sake of the gospel. He didn't play it safe. Chuck Swindoll says, no one liked to travel in the first century. It was difficult and often treacherous. And if people did travel, it was usually for government affairs and personal business or some other necessity. Never for pleasure, staying home was much safer. You know, Barnabas went. He was compelled to go because of the gospel and because of the work of God. He put himself in harm's way for the kingdom of God. So I have a question for you this morning. How are, living, are you living your life sold out for the kingdom? What are those risks that God wants you to take for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to step out? You know, Brother Barnabas, Double B, he was one of those guys. He was willing and God used him. You know, notice that he had seen the grace of God. Barnabas took a look around after he got there and he tested and inspected what was going on in the church in Antioch. And he had come to the conclusion that God's grace was evident here. God's grace was at work in this place, in this church, in this pagan culture. In the same way that the Lord was at work in Jerusalem among the apostles and the followers of Christ. What was going on? Well, the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon those who had trusted in Christ. Just as Peter had seen in the home of Cornelius. Just as Barnabas had seen and witnessed there in Jerusalem. They were breaking bread together. They were fellowshipping together. They were honoring the word of God. Lives were being changed and transformed and people were coming to Christ. Gifts of the Holy Spirit were present. Jesus Christ was lifted up as the great one among them. And they had a love for one another and a heart to reach the lost for Christ, the command that God gave them. You know, this was a grace-filled church. God's unmerited, undeserved favor was being poured out in this place. This pagan culture made up of Gentile believers, great numbers were coming to Christ and they were being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this made Barnabas glad and he encouraged them. Now, it was a real blessing and an encouragement for Barnabas to see this genuine move of the Holy Spirit in this church. There was peace, there was unity, and it made him glad to see God's grace on display. You know, we have all tasted and seen the counterfeit, the fake, haven't we? The church that is driven by the flesh, man-centered churches destroy lives, doesn't it? Many of you here today have been hurt and wounded by churches that have abused you, 
But you know what brother Barnabas did? He encouraged them to continue in the grace that he saw that was evident there. Barnabas was given authority. He was sent out by the church in Jerusalem to go and inspect what was happening. Why was Barnabas able to encourage and exhort the believers in Antioch? They didn't know who he was. How was he able to come into this fellowship and, and they listened to him? Verse 24 tells us, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas had a fruitful ministry because he didn't come into the church in Antioch, bossing anyone around, throwing his heavy weight around. You know who I am? Do you know where I come from? He didn't try to coerce them. He came to serve. Barnabas was a good man. He's not a con artist, not a wolf, not someone seeking um, or looking after to take advantage of people. Barnabas had a good reputation. He was a humble man. He had compassion and he was godly. He was full of the Holy Spirit, not full of himself. He wasn't boasting in what he did, but he was dominated, controlled by, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You know, brothers and sisters, if we're full of the Holy Spirit, there is little to no room left for the flesh to work. And the word tells us that we're called to be filled with the Spirit. I pray that that would be us. I pray and notice that he was full of faith. He believed God. He believed God's promises, his word. And he was a man who stepped out in faith to trust God. I think that Barnabas gives us a lot of lessons on when we go into a new church environment. We don't come in thinking that we're the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> Barnabas came in because he was a good man, not a con man, not a wolf looking for his own interests. He was a man who was controlled by the spirit, not full of himself. And he was a man who trusted and believed God. And I think that, man, as you come into a new place or whether it's this new church plant that we're gonna do, how are you coming? Are you coming to serve like Barnabas? Or are you coming to show us how great you are? In verse 25, then Barnabas departed for Saul, Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. God was at work in this grace-filled church. He was moving in mighty ways and thousands were coming to Christ. Barnabas was so encouraged, but he was probably so overwhelmed. He didn't know what to do. How are we gonna disciple all of these young believers? He could have gone all the way back 300 miles to Jerusalem to bring back help, but that's not what he did. He thought, man, I can go and get Brother Saul. So he went to Tarsus and brought him back to Antioch to be involved in the work there. And they saw great fruit. So how did Saul of Tarsus go on to become the apostle of grace? There's a number of things, and this is how I'm gonna close. Saul had a Barnabas in his life. Barnabas was a great encourager. He had the gift of encouragement. Now, we all know when we've been around an encourager, don't we? I mean, they make you feel like a million bucks. They make you feel like you can go and conquer the world. And I know in my life, over the years of me being in ministry and before I was in ministry, 
Those that so called out the potential in my life and whether it was just a text or a word of encouragement at the right time in the right moment, that's all I needed to wake up the next day to keep putting a, a foot in front of the other. Barnabas was this to the apostle to Saul of Tarsus. It was Barnabas who came to Saul and first brought him to the disciples in Jerusalem when everyone was afraid of him. Because Barnabas was a good man, he saw the good in others. He didn't view Saul with skeptical eyes. Barnabas saw the potential in Saul and called it out of him. He didn't only call it out of him, but he pursued him. He went and found him in Tarsus and brought him back to Antioch to help him with his ministry there. Not only did he have Brother Barnabas alongside of him, double B, right? But Saul was planted in a grace-filled environment. God brought this undeserving man, the man who was once full of pride and prejudice against non-Jews. God's so funny. He planted him right in the center of this Gentile church where God's grace in this, was permeating into this man's life, into his heart. And he was being transformed by the grace of God. He saw God's work on display in his own life but also in the lives of these undeserving Gentile believers who are getting filled with the Holy Spirit and going on to do great things in this church and in this community for the kingdom of God. God was preparing Saul for the work that he was calling him to, to take the gospel to the Gentile world. And over the course of Saul's life, God taught him many things about grace, which is where we get our doctrine of grace today. And one of the things that God taught him was that God's grace was sufficient for him. Why is that so powerful? Because Paul had gone through and done unbelievable things for the kingdom. I read off a bit of his resume. But he had also suffered so greatly for the kingdom of God. He bore on his bodies the scars of Christ. And in the midst of all that, God still gave him these unbelievable visions from heaven and to keep him from being proud, God allowed a messenger of Satan to come and tribulate him. Now the word for thorn in the flesh is not like a little sliver that you get and a little nuisance to your thumb and it hurts a little bit. He uses the Greek word as a tent spike or a tent peg. Now imagine driving that into your thigh or your, your waist there how would that impact you? Well, that would cripple you. That would disadvantage you. That would cause you to be limited in a lot of ways. And it was hurting Saul. So much so that he pleaded with the Lord three times. Look at what he's doing, how he's laying down his life for the kingdom. In the midst of all of that, he's asking the Lord to take away this thorn in the flesh. And you know what the Lord said? My grace is sufficient for you, Saul. What is the Lord saying? Look, I know, Saul, that it's limiting to you. I know that you think you're disadvantaged. I know that it's a painful thing that you're enduring. But my grace is sufficient for you in my power to accomplish everything that I've called you to do, regardless of the limitation. And you know what, brothers and sisters? God offers you that same thing. His grace is sufficient for whatever you're going through today. Whatever that disadvantage you think or that limitation in your life, by His grace, you are able to accomplish everything that he's called you to. Not in your strength, not in your power. And we have that because what Christ has done for us. And he would go on to write to his son in the faith. Saul knows that he's about, he's lived his whole life. He said, I've run my race and I'm about to go to be with the father. 
and he realizes his son in the faith needs encouragement and he's writing his last letter to him. Timothy has been given the charge, a difficult assignment to stay in Ephesus, to keep that church on track. And Timothy over his life, he's had some certain tendencies to shrink back, timidity, where things are pressing up against him and he begins to step back. And Paul is saying, what can I do to encourage myself? What are the things that God has taught me? And he writes to him and he says, there in 2 Timothy 2.1, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you what Paul is not telling him. Oh, suck it up, Timothy. You just need to work harder and try harder there in Ephesus. You just need to pull your boots up by the bootstraps and get in the trenches and just keep fighting it out. That's not what he's saying. That word be strong in the Greek, it means to receive strength, to be strengthened and to increase in strength. It means to receive the power from the Lord, to receive that equipping power by his grace. Timothy, receive from the Lord the grace, his divine help when you don't know what to do. His equipping power to pastor, to teach, to correct, to rebuke and to train disciples in righteousness. That grace to stand in the face of opposition. That grace to be bold to do the work of an evangelist. Everything you need, Timothy, for the battles you are facing today and for the journey that lies ahead is found in Jesus Christ poured out into your life through his great grace. Oh, what an awesome thing. Brothers and sisters, this morning, grace changes everything for us, for those who are in Christ. And if you don't have Christ in your life this morning, then you don't have grace. Because the only way to get grace activated in your life is to receive him by faith. So I want to give you an opportunity. Is there someone here this morning that doesn't know Christ? You know in your heart that you are not right with the Lord. And you've heard about grace this morning. And you're like, man, I I want that grace in my life. Well, that grace doesn't come to you by trying harder. It doesn't come to you by working like a pack mule. It's simply you stepping out by faith and receiving the gift that Jesus or God has given to us by faith, his son. You just receive it. How do you receive a gift? You just receive it. You bring it into your life. And that faith activates God's grace. Is there anybody that says, yes, that's me. I wanna pray for you. Anybody that wants to receive the Lord this morning, I want that grace to be activated in my life. All right. Well, Saul went on to become the apostle of grace because the grace of God transformed this this man from the inside out. Saul suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel, but it was God's grace that kept him each step of the way. He never let go of it. He never moved on from it. He just clung to it with all of his might. Brothers and sisters, may we be a church that is strong in the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for the great privilege it is to be called your sons and daughters. And Lord, that because we've trusted in you by faith, you've activated in our lives this amazing grace, this unmerited, undeserved favor. But Lord, it is your grace that keeps us It's your grace that gives us the divine help that we need 
your divine provision, your divine protection. And it is your grace that equips us to do everything that you've called us to do in Christ. Oh Lord, may we be a church that is filled with your grace. Lord, that we wouldn't hinder the work of the gospel because we're focused on rules and traditions and, and other things. May we never be a church that, that, that keeps people from coming to you. But Lord, may we be a church that walks in the favor of your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.